Hello, and welcome back to the show. This is the Dustcast, the podcast dedicated to exploring the ancient context of the Bible and of our faith. I want to start by apologizing that it has been so long since I put up a new episode. Life hit pretty hard, and it became difficult to find the time to keep up with the show. But I'm excited to be back and with a great interview this week. I spoke with Dr. Timothy G. Gombus, Professor of New Testament at Grand Rapids Theological Seminary. We talked about his essay entitled Participation in the New Creation People of God in Christ by the Spirit, which is published in a book entitled The Apostle Paul and the Christian Life. We start out talking about the new perspective on Paul and just sort of jump right into the conversation. So without further ado, here's Dr. Gombas. So yeah, I don't think I have ever had anyone on the podcast before to directly talk about the new uh, perspective on Paul. And I know your essay uh, in the book, The Apostle Paul and the Christian Life, is really geared towards how to start applying that perspective to life here and now, the life in the church. Um, yeah. But why don't you give us maybe just a real quick overview on what we mean by the new perspective on Paul? What What is that? Okay. Uh, so for ever since the Reformation, and certainly uh, before that even, the dominant reading of Paul was uh, was oriented around justification by faith. And this is a little bit of a broad brush. But the dominant reading of Paul was oriented around justification by faith. And that had a very particular understanding. So the glory of the gospel was set against the very dark backdrop of uh, Judaism, which was steeped in legalism. So the assumption uh, on the part of Protestant interpreters, Western interpreters, was that Judaism required that uh, one pursue legalistic works of righteousness in order to achieve perfection, uh, to achieve justification before God. And that was what uh, Paul's assumption was before he came to Christ. Uh, He was very frustrated in that pursuit. He was this um, person bent on achieving perfection before he discovered Christ, was frustrated in that. A lot of that comes out in his uh, autobiographical comments in Romans 7, his uh, failure to achieve perfection under the law. And uh, once he discovers Christ, he realizes that justification is actually by faith, not through a pursuit of legalistic works righteousness in order to achieve perfection. That was the um, the dominant understanding. That led to a lot of other uh, sort of implications. So the law was understood as this um, very harsh regime that God's people were under. Uh, It demanded uh, perfection. It demanded a pursuit of of, uh, legalistic works. Nobody could ever achieve that. Once Jesus comes along and uh, everyone understands that justification is actually by faith, the law is no longer necessary. That led to, uh, again, this is sort of a broad brush, uh, general trends in interpretation, but that led to a real dearth of uh, reflection on the Christian life, because really what it meant to be Christian was to hold fast to justification by faith, um, build up one's assurance that one was justified by faith, and uh, much of the Christian life involved in just holding fast to that assurance. A lot of bad implications from all of that, very weak reflection on ethics, very weak uh, history of uh, reflection on living as Christian people, very weak focus on uh, the church. The church is just a collection of the justified people who are striving to 
build up their assurance that they are actually justified and a very negative understanding of biblical commands, very uh, negative understanding of the law of the Old Testament. And um, so that was the dominant reading of, of Paul in the history of the church. That also puts a pretty um, wide gulf between understanding Jesus and the Gospels on one hand. And on the other hand, understanding Paul, because if Jesus is talking so much about discipleship, so much about the kingdom, so much about living in the community, why is Paul, you know, always focused on justification by faith and not ever talk about the things that Jesus is talking about? So there's a wide gulf uh, put between those two. And then Paul also becomes sort of an island in the New Testament because he's unrelated to the rest of the of the letters in the New Testament, like First, Second Peter and James and Hebrews. And so it causes all kinds of trouble biblical theologically. Um, a big breakthrough came about uh, in the 70s when E.P. Sanders wrote his book, but there were precursors to that. So there had always been interpreters that were troubled by this overall reading of Paul. Um, G.F. Moore in the early part of the 20th century, um, Christopher Stendhal in the uh, 50s and 60s, but it wasn't until E.P. Sanders wrote his book, Paul and Palestinian Judaism, uh, in the late 70s, that there was a real breakthrough. And he wrote uh, a book that uh, analyzed first century Judaism and basically said that our understanding of Judaism is um, read through the lens of Paul, or uh, sorry, of Martin Luther's experience uh, over against legalistic and oppressive uh, Catholicism. We read that into our understanding of Paul and his understanding of Judaism over, over Paul over against Judaism. But not only that, but we're reading Judaism <clears throat> in terms of uh, Pharisaic Judaism and you know, rabbinic Judaism in the second, third centuries. But he sought to understand first century Judaism. And uh, he basically um, exposed how it is that Judaism largely is a religion of grace. It's based on election. God chooses his people and then gives the law for them to, for the Jews, for Israel to understand how it is that they can walk in his love. So law does not lead to salvation or life. God saves the people, chooses them, brings them to himself and then gives them his law so that they can walk in his love. Um, and uh, he talked about how it is that Law observance is something more like covenantal gnomism. So within the covenant, there is law observance. So E.P. Sanders uh, did the study on Judaism, and then when he turned to Paul to to uh, apply his findings to Paul, oddly he he said um, Paul does not rightly reckon with Judaism because Judaism is not this kind of thing that Paul says about it. Uh, his study made a huge impact on, on biblical studies, massive impact on biblical studies, but mostly in our understanding of Judaism. It wasn't until several years later when um, James Dunn and N.T. Wright started to do their work on Paul, uh, when Pauline interpreters basically took the tack that Paul does rightly reckon with Judaism. He understands it far better than we do, surely. Uh, it's just that uh, Sanders didn't rightly understand Paul. So with this new understanding of Judaism, let's take another look at Paul to see if we can perhaps read some of his discussions about the law more faithfully. So the new perspective um, really is this 
reinterpretation of Paul in light of a new look on Judaism. And uh, the main focus of the new perspective is on mainly on the negative statements Paul makes with regard to justification. So he makes negative statements in Romans and Galatians, and he makes positive statements. Uh, justification is not by works of law. Justification is by faith in Christ or the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. So the new perspective focuses on those negative statements. When Paul denies that justification is by works of law, what exactly is he denying? So it's a focus on the phrase works of law. What does works of law mean? Does it mean legalistic deeds of obedience, or uh, which is the traditional perspective by and large, or does it mean uh, the kind of deeds that a person does in observance of the Mosaic law that mark a person out as a Jew, that mark a person out as having Jewish identity? So is Paul saying justification is not does not come to a person just because he is a Jewish person. It does come to a person uh, by virtue of faith in Christ or faithfulness of Christ. So that's really the essence of the new perspective. Um, of course, a lot of other issues get involved in that, and a lot of other issues have gotten wrapped up in the discussion, and, and many of those other issues have confused things, um, mainly um, whether or not justification involves imputation of Christ's righteousness to the believer. Uh, but that's not strictly a new, a new perspective issue. That issue has been a debate that theologians have had for hundreds of years. And, you know, many in and out of the Reformed tradition and Reformed traditions disagree over that. That's not strictly a new perspective issue, although that's gotten wrapped up into the new perspective issues. So that's sort of an overview of what the new perspective is. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Thanks. Um, I think, you know, a lot of people, to the extent that they're familiar with it at all, it, it sounds like a very you know, theological abstract sometimes maybe focus on how do we become justified and that sort of thing. But what I loved about your essay is that you then walk us through what does that mean even for the Christian life here and now? You know, what is the story of the church and, and how do we live into that today? Um, but maybe before we, we move past atonement sort of talk altogether, um, you situate your discussion within that broad sweep of the biblical narrative. And you've kind of gone through some of that already, but you really flesh out, um, you know, the God's original goal in creation, the failure of Adam and Eve and then Abraham and the nation of Israel and how Jesus sort of um, comes into human history to, to reverse that and make us Godward again, become this template that we can uh, be conformed to and be united to God's will again. I, I feel like I hear maybe some echoes of kind of a re recapitulation theory of atonement, sort of Irenaeus's theory of how Christ um, summed up all of human history in his life. Do you, do you think that's a fair reading of, uh, of the narrative? Yeah, I think so. Um, I'm not as familiar with Irenaeus as I should be. Uh, I'm not a church historian. I, I, I should read more of it. Uh, but, you know, I'm a New Testament scholar. However, uh, from what I know of his work, um, that does seem to me to be a faithful reading of the story of the Bible as one unified story. And that, um, in many ways, was what was very appealing to me. I was drawn to uh, the New Perspective discussions, um, mainly 
because early in my Christian life, I just was, I was reading the Bible a ton. So when I was in college, you know, 25 years ago or so, I just started reading my Bible and I was reading uh, the Pentateuch, read Deuteronomy constantly, read the Psalms, just read through the Old Testament. Uh, when I got into seminary, I got into a Bible study with some some folks um, who, because of some Reformed influences, had such a bifurcation between the Old Testament and the New. And the Old was this regime that was unfortunate. And uh, to me, I just could never understand that because having just read the Old Testament a lot, to me, it seemed to really re- reveal the character of God. God's will for humanity, God's love for Israel, his intentions for Israel. And it seemed to me to be a story that had consistency mm-hmm. and had loads of continuity. So that God had these original intentions. He had these intentions for Israel to be a, a, a nation of justice and a mission nation to the nations. And his intentions had always been uh, for humanity to enjoy his love, to be communal, to be justice-oriented, and care for creation, for his glory. Um, And with all those intentions having failed, Jesus comes along and is not some completely new move of God that throws out everything in the past, but it sums up and brings together uh, all the moves that he had intended to work well in the past but because of human failure had just not gone well. So Jesus is the solution to so many of the problems that humanity caused uh, throughout the biblical story as it developed. So I just, the new perspective appealed to me and some of the perspectives in the new perspective appealed to me just because it held the Bible together in a way that other readings of, of the whole of scripture just did not hold it together well. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. And, you know, I, I think one of the things that has been really helpful to me is I've tried to read the kind of the big story of the Bible and understand the context of the narrative more and more is you see the the communal focus over and over again, right? So God elects the people of Israel. He, he's creating right. people. And and then I think the same with the church. And so we, the, the church, are the, the new creation people of God, as you put it in your essay. And, and so I, I think I've gotten somewhat used to that the idea of justification and election, having those more communal aspects as well. But something that you said in your essay that, that really struck me, I, I guess I had never thought about it this explicitly, is um, that it's the community, the church, that is also the object through which God is sanctifying us and producing the character of Christ. And, and I just don't think I'd ever really thought of the process of sanctification as being a church-wide, you know, uh, process as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the primary, uh, the primary uh, focus of all the spirit language in the New Testament, and really in the Old Testament as well, is corporate. This is one of the uh, products of our individualized culture and our individualized Western reading of the Bible is that we, we often read Paul's spirit language with reference to me or to the individual. I am the temple of the Holy Spirit. We have this personal relationship with God in Jesus, and that's directed through the Holy Spirit. Uh, I get impulses, or I am empowered by the Spirit to live my Christian life or to do ministry. Um, I don't, I don't have major problems with that way of thinking, but the primary focus in Paul's language is the church. The church is the place where the Spirit dwells. The church is the place 
um, uh, that God inhabits, God is empowering the church by the Spirit, God unites uh, people to himself by the Spirit, and he unites people together by the Spirit. So people in the church, the new creation people of God, are vitally connected to one another by the Spirit and vitally connected to Jesus by the Spirit. And I was affected um, by Paul's Spirit language in uh, Galatians and in Ephesians, mainly where, where um, and especially in Ephesians, where uh, God is growing the church up and they are to sort of fill out the form of Jesus and the spirit is directing that process. And uh, it just struck me. Um, I mean, I've just been struck over the last decade and a half or so that um, all of, I mean, pretty much every one of Paul's commands is directed to the church to take on one sort or another of corporate behavior. So it's all, I mean, all the commands are corporate. They're all things that we do to one another. They're all things we should not do to one another, the negative commands. So um, that all of those dynamics are linked together. So the spirit sanctifies the church. That is, that's a, um, that's something that has already happened. Sanctification has largely to do with uh, being set apart or being made holy. So the Spirit sanctifies us, sets us apart as God's um, unique people called to a special purpose. Um, and holiness and sanctification language all recalls uh, Israel language. We are set apart for mission, set apart unto God. So it's not so much a process as it is a state that we inhabit. We inhabit this reality called being God's people. But it's also a process in that uh, it involves identifying corporate habits, corporate patterns of life, corporate modes of thought, speech patterns, all of that, identifying the ones that are destructive and by God's spirit, empowered by God's spirit, taking up corporate habits and corporate patterns and speech patterns and patterns of thought, corporate ideologies and corporate imaginations um, that are redemptive and making those habitual so that we are blessed and God's glorified and the world is given life. So all that fits together and the spirit produces that in the church. It's a corporate pursuit, which is very difficult for Western people to get their heads around um, because we just so, it is so ingrained in us to see things in terms of me. I have this struggle all the time with students, which I have tried over a period of 15 or years or so since I've just seen this in Paul to take up corporate oriented language and uh, it is very, very difficult for students to get their heads around because it's so different. It's like living on a different planet. It's, it's trying to inhabit a different imagination. It's a completely unique set of language. Yeah. We've been so ingrained in the West and as Americans to think in terms of me, my career, my trajectory in the future, you know, my travel plans, my uh, intentions for the day, all that kind of stuff, my destructive habits my aims to improve myself. We don't think in terms of um, the place that I play in terms of a community and how we need to be faithful disciples of Jesus. It, it really, it's a difficult thing to sort of take up. Yeah. Yeah. That, you know, you mentioned the, the language there and I, I've done just a little bit of reading of Jewish prayer. I, I wouldn't call myself an expert by any stretch, but I think you, you quickly see a very different set of language there. I, you know, our language, as you point out, is so individualistic. We always say things like, you know, 
God, please bless me and thank you for um, you know, all of the blessings that I have and that sort of thing in prayer. Whereas with Jewish prayer, I think it's much more common to hear the, the we and us language, you know, what you have done yeah. for us and um, we come before you. And even in our songs, you know, we'll sing things like here I am to bow down, here yeah. I am to worship. Um, and, and it, yeah, it's just, it's the way that we talk. Um, yeah, so, absolutely. I don't know, maybe I'm conflating too many things here together because I, I guess I'm kind of linking in my mind sanctification with discipleship and um, spiritual disciplines and that type of growth in, in the faith. And I think you make a valid point that there is a, a big part of sanctification, which is not a process, and that's just the initial kind of being set apart by God. But, um, you know, as I have thought about how do we grow more as a church, how do we grow disciples or how do we, you know, whatever language you want to use, um, it almost always seems to go back to things that we still do individualistically. So when we talk about prayer, we go off and have silent prayer. And when we fast, we may fast on our own. Or when we study the Bible, a lot of it is independent study. And so, um, I, I don't know, as you think about how the Spirit builds communities in the church, are there any communal practices or corporate modes of behavior um, that you think are kind of most helpful in opening us up to that type of work of the Spirit? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, yes, we absolutely do have our imagination shaped uh, according to these individualistic practices. And, and really, it's, you know, the result of our imaginations being shaped along this line. And it's a failure of the imagination that it's so difficult to think about corporate practices um, as sort of a matter of course. I mean, we just imagine individual sorts of things. You know, I, like you say, I go off and read my Bible. I uh, have a time of prayer. I do certain things. Uh, but we, yeah, we have to take up a, a set of corporate practices and, and we have to realize that these individualistic practices, if anything, um, are preparation for being Christian. Because according to Paul, it's, it's nearly impossible to be Christian on your own. There are almost no Christian behaviors that you can do sort of if you're just on your own. Being Christian involves um, confessing sin to one another, um, repairing relationships, forgiving one another. I mean, if anything, one of the primary things that we do to imitate God, to obey Jesus, and to go along with what Paul tells us to do is to forgive one another, to reconcile, um, to speak words of encouragement, to speak words of life. So to take up these practices of um, asking how someone is doing, drawing another person out, offering words of encouragement, mm. um, asking if there are needs that need to be met, finding out in my church community if there are old people that need to be looked after, um, finding out if there are any ways that needs can be met in my community this week. Uh, letting people know what my needs are for this week. That um, It's a middle-class thing to help other people. It's a, it's a difficult thing for us to be helped by other yeah. people. That's something that middle-class people have a hard time with. Um, talking with my church community about needs that we know of in our community among people who are not Christian and asking are there things that we can do as a body to um, meet some needs that we know about, doing acts of uh, service together. Mm -hmm. 
let's see here. One of the big things that we can do as churches that we often don't think of, we think that it's frivolous or just sort of an add-on, but in the New Testament, it is fundamental. And that is, as a church community, to have meals together. Mm-hmm. That it's, It seems like that's fluffy or that's that's useless or that's pointless or that's something optional. But, you know, for Paul, he calls it Jesus' meal. So the church is supposed to get together and uh, have meals together. And um, it's supposed to be the kind of meal that is very unlike any other meal, where people get together and share and uh, eat together. And people who don't have anything can just come and eat. People who have a lot can bring extra. And that is one of the primary ways that we actually carry out our Christian identity. One of the reasons why that does not happen in many churches is it is that it's simply inconvenient to have meals together all the time. We do it maybe once in a long time. Uh, but I was part of a church. My family was part of a, an urban church plant uh, for five years when I lived in Ohio, where we ate a meal every week together. And uh, because my wife was the one that organized it every week, I can tell you that that is very inconvenient. It involves <laughs> talking to one another. It involves planning. It involves someone forgetting to bring something that they said they were going to bring. And um, what we would always say is all of these things that we have to do to plan and carry out this meal involve Christian behaviors. We're talking to one another. We are building relationships where I'm stopping over and dropping something off. And when I do that, we talk. Someone forgets to bring something, which opens up an opportunity to confess and forgive. I mean, all of these things create Christian behaviors. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, in many places, contemporary church life involves showing up somewhere for 90 minutes and then leaving, yeah. which, you know, we've made contemporary church life convenient, which means basically we've evacuated church life of opportunities to be Christian. So really, you know, being Christian is a set of corporate habits and corporate behaviors uh, where, you know, if we actually spent a lot more time together, it would open up opportunities for us to be Christian. I mean, if you never make one another angry, if you never get on each other's nerves, then you never have an opportunity to sort of confront those uh, bad behaviors and you never have opportunities to forgive. You just leave a church or go somewhere else that you like better. But, you know, if you have these kind of situations that don't go well, that's great. That's great news, <laughs> Christian, because then you can actually forgive and reconcile. And that is how relationships grow strong. And that's how uh, relationships, that's how you bond with another person over five or 15 or 25 years, I mean, which is supposed to be you know, the length of time that we're in churches. But, you know, contemporary American life does not really allow for Christian conduct just because we are so inundated and shaped by, um, you know, values like convenience or efficiency and all that kind of stuff, which is, these, these are terrible, terrible values. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Um, I, I just went through a book called Unclean with my, my Sunday class at church, and um, the author, Richard Beck, ends up kind of, it's a study of reaching out to the outcasts and um fellowship and hospitality, welcoming. One of the places he really lands on as a recommendation is table fellowship, reenacting Jesus's ministry of table fellowship. And he makes a big deal of meals together. And, you know, one of the connections I think you can draw is to the Eucharist or Lord's Supper and various churches have very strong theologies of how they view the Lord's Supper. But um, it, it is 
in a sense, a, a communal meal, a table fellowship act. But then if you think even more broadly than that, what the church does, I think it's other meals, like you mentioned too, and it, whether it's just a, a meal together any night of the week or uh, a pantry ministry where you're giving out food to those in the community. All of those things that center around food can be such powerful events in the life of a community. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You're spending time with each other. You're spending time with others uh, who are needy. Um, but even just the, even all the things that happen when you're doing things like that um, are just incredibly valuable. You know, you get to know somebody, you see somebody else serving that inspires you to serve. Um, so, I mean, that's, those are all ways that, uh, you know, we can do sort of corporate practices together. And those are, you know, these are, these are the virtues that, that Jesus talks about. These are the virtues and the practices that Paul is talking about. Almost nothing that he mentions, uh, that, you know, command wise is something that you can do off on your own. So I think we need to begin to imagine that the things I do on my own are preparation for being Christian, but they don't sort of mark me out as Christian. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so let's talk about unity for a minute. Um, I want to get to this before we run out of time. Actually, one of the things, uh, one of the other things I think that I liked most in your essay was the comment that Paul does not envision unity as something that would be nice so long as people get uh, agree on the fundamentals of doctrine. And so you make a very strong push for the importance of Christian unity and how that shows the glory of God and, and all of that. And, and it seems like the church is uh, perhaps not doing so well in that area these days. How do you think? Yeah, badly. I mean, how do you think we work towards greater unity um, when it has been so difficult for us? Yeah, um, unity is fundamental. I mean, absolutely fundamental. I I, uh, I grew up in a, um, a strong Bible tradition, a Bible church tradition that was focused on uh, sound teaching, you know, what we called sound teaching anyway. <laughs> and um, it was just focused on that. And anybody that deviated from that narrow line that we took, you know, it was our responsibility to, you know, cut ourselves off from them. Mm. And I remember hearing that, uh, in fact, I'm, I'll never forget my pastor said one time, uh, a very prominent Bible teacher said, you know, look out, false teachers will talk about love and unity. And when they, you know, talk about love and unity, there's going to be false teaching that follows right behind. I remember thinking, well, yeah, they, you know, I totally agree with that. But goodness, doesn't Paul and Jesus say a lot about love and unity? <laughs> what about that? And, um, yeah, for Paul, the, the church's, the church is being unified, uh, sends signals into the cosmic realm, all these cosmic powers that are trying to divide the church and divide humanity and destroy humanity by uh, orienting human life that, so that we destroy one another. When the church is unified, signals are sent into the cosmic realm that Jesus is Lord. So Jesus' lordship is dependent on, the, on his people on earth loving one another and being unified. So it is fundamental. It's not something that's nice. It's, uh, I mean, Paul writes first Corinthians. The whole point of that is to unify the Corinthian church. The whole point of Romans is to unify the Roman church. The whole point of Galatians is to, uh, unify that church because that the teaching that has come in has turned people against each other so that people are biting and devouring each other as Paul says later. Uh, so unity is fundamental 
And um, the practices that um, go along with being unified are fundamental. So we have to see Jesus's family as a lot bigger than the people that we choose to be around. So if I'm, you know, a young white person and I love hanging out with young white people that make the cultural choices that I do, um, when I participate, I, I have to see that as a cultural reality. And I have to see that Jesus's culture is a different kind of culture and a different kind of reality where he is uniting me to older people or to different ethnicities or to different kinds of people that don't make the cultural choices that I like and don't sort of follow the trends that I like and listen to the music that I like. And when I'm with that kind of people, I need to um, you know, take up practices of unity. I need to get used to talking to them. I need to get used to serving alongside them. I need to get used to seeing that they are my siblings in the faith. Um, you know, even if I you know, agree or disagree with you know, the ways that they live their lives or, um, you know, with the kind of sort of um, choices that, they, you know, lifestyle choices that they make. Um, so, yeah, my membership in being Jesus in Jesus's family means that I've got, you know, siblings to my political right and left that I need to learn how to love and learn how to be loved by. Um, and I've got siblings that are just occupy different socioeconomic positions than I do. And I need to learn how to uh, not only get along with them, but see that they are my siblings in the faith that we, you know, belong to. And that has to be a process that's carried out, like I said, over 35 years. That's not, I'm not going to go to a church I like for a time, go to another church that I like. Uh, when we are part of a church, it's, it's part of the family that we're connected to for, for the rest of our lives. Mm. Again, a lot of uh, sort of anti or counter cultural ways of thinking in order to uh, see that unity is something that is, um, that's an essential part of the community that we're part of. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that struggle for unity when there are such strong cultural differences and, you know, even subcultures within a small part of the U S um, can be very difficult for people practically. Sure. Uh, but, but what about even theological differences? I mean, one of the things we hear a lot is something along the lines of we need to have, grace in the non-essentials and unity in the essentials, but we can't even agree on what the essentials are. And so I, I've started to think that if we wait to have unity on the essentials of doctrine, we're never going to have any form of unity. And, and yet there's probably only so far you can push that, right? I mean, there, there I suppose, has to be a line somewhere. <laughs> so I, yeah. I mean, how do you think that we, we could work towards more unity, even across churches that, that may disagree on what they perceive as as pretty big. Um, do you, and, well, and let me give one example, because you, you mentioned First Corinthians being all about unity. I, I think one of the sort of climaxes, or maybe the climax of that letter is chapter 15, where Paul is arguing for the resurrection. And it seems to me that Paul is almost saying, this is so fundamental, you can't be a Christian if you don't believe in the resurrection. And yet, as he's talking to people that don't agree with him, He's not casting them out of the church. He's talking to them as brothers. I mean, he's accepting them as a part of the church that he's trying to unify, but yet he's still arguing with them on a point. So there's, it seems to me, Paul has some type of unity that these are my brothers in the faith, even when there is a really significant thing that he disagrees with them on. And, and I think that balance is, is often tough for us as people to, to still see someone as a member of our church family 
while we are disagreeing about something we think of as really core to our theology. Yeah, that, that is difficult. Um, I mean, from Paul's perspective, you know, he is an apostle and he can be confident that he is the reservoir of truth. He's the agent of God's truth. He's the agent of, um, of Jesus's voice. And, um, you know, he's, he's directing a community that is confused about the resurrection. Um, and, you know, it's not that they've sort of considered things over a long period of time and then have rejected it. I think that would be a different sort of a thing. Mm. Um, yeah, that's, boy, that, this is just a real tough one. Uh, <laughs> I think from, to my mind, uh, I mean, I, I know how I consider things. I mean, what's difficult is to have, is to bring about this sort of a reality uh, among, especially the American church, because the church in many other countries, or I should say, you know, Christian churches in many other countries, uh, which are struggling and marginalized, they get along with a wider group of Christians than we do because, mm. you know, the church has been so quote unquote successful, or I should say the quote unquote church has been very successful <laughs> in America, which I don't know that that's necessarily good. And we've been able to sort of isolate ourselves in these ghettos. Um, and a lot is wrapped up in that, you know, the way that we do ministry, the independent churches can kind of go off and um, the ego of pastors and the egos of churches, cause churches can have egos, is sort of built up when they split off, start a new thing and get big. And so they have to disagree with somebody else in order to justify their existence. I mean, there's a lot of corrupted motives and patterns of cultural life that go into this. Mm. But I think we have to recognize we are not the reservoirs and the containers of truth in the way that Paul is and was. Um, you know, we see, see we see things a certain way. And we are Christian in a certain way. And a lot of that has to do with choices and things that we're comfortable with. And um, I think we have to give ourselves permission to be the kinds of Christians that we are, but also recognize that other, there are other Christians that say things and do things differently. And we have to recognize that they, those are differences within, if, if they confess Jesus as Lord, and give assent to the basics of the faith, the reality of God, the hope of his, uh, his coming in the future, um, the, ascent, you know, the, the importance of the unity of the church and the presence of the spirit among us and the reality of the resurrection from the dead. To my mind, if people affirm those things and hold to those things, they're my sister and my brother, and we have to you know, get along with them and embrace them. Um, and failure, like I said, failure to do that, I need to see that failure to do that is not my loyalty to Jesus. That's my disloyalty to Jesus, because if he's embraced a person and I am saying they're outside the family and they're not worth my fellowship, that's uh, a serious strike to Jesus's lordship. So um, and how do we carry that out? How do we pursue that? I don't know necessarily other than to say, uh, we got to do better. We got to get used to it. I'm glad I'm at a seminary where we um, serve all kinds of Christians. And, um, you know, I'm in a, a cultural situation where it's wonderful to get along with, you know, uh, African-American brothers and sisters who are in different traditions, uh, charismatic friends, Roman Catholic friends. I, I, I love it. It enriches the faith. It makes it helps me understand things. Um, 
there are, there certainly are things that we may disagree about, um, especially doing what I do as an, as a, as a biblical exegete that is a very particular kind of a person and people don't say things the way that I do, or I think, ah, that's not anywhere in the Bible, what you're saying right now, you know, um, but there are many ways in which, you know, how I need to conduct myself with my brothers and sisters is to uh, get used to being siblings and realize that conversations are not opportunities for lectures, but they're opportunities to just embrace one another and to build relationships. So I, yeah, I don't know, Jason, that's a great question. It's, that's a tough, that's a real tough challenge. Yeah, no, I, it's been great, though. I, I appreciate the comments. Um, I, I think that was really helpful. So it is a big challenge, and I, I don't think we'll solve it uh, in the you know, short time we had today. But um, I, I really appreciate the discussion. It's given me a lot to think about. Um, cool. Well, and, but before we go, why don't we tell people where they can find you if they're interested in more? So I, I don't think I've said where you teach yet, but you're a professor at um, Grand Rapids Theological Seminary, right? That's right. And you have a blog as well, Faith Improvise. That's timgombus.com that's right yeah i uh started that about five years ago and went gangbusters for about three years and it's kind of petered out a bit but it's all there all right um blog for a while i I, uh, i've written a book on ephesians i wrote an introductory it's called the drama of ephesians i wrote an introductory book called paul a guide for the perplexed that's in a series that tnt clark did Mm. um and I'm I'm currently working on a, a commentary on uh, the Gospel of Mark. All right. And uh, so yeah, I'm having fun. Well, great. How uh, how long before the commentary on Mark will uh, be, come out? Do you think? I hope to finish it in another year, and uh, it should come out probably a year after that. So it's in the series. A couple years. Yeah. That Scott McKnight is editing, mm-hmm. uh, called uh, the Story of God commentary series that Zondervan is publishing so probably probably in what is about 2018 middle of 2018 it should be out lord willing hopefully (laughs) by god's grace (laughs) only by god's grace my goodness yeah i i can only imagine what kind of undertaking that is well i'm um, having a ton of fun but you know it's not some days are better than others yeah well, thanks for the time today. I'll put up links to your, your books that are already out on, on the show notes page, and I really appreciate it. It's been great. Great. Thank you, Jason. It's been fun. Yeah. Well, have a good day. Yeah, you too. Take care. Thanks for joining me for another episode of The Dustcast. As always, you can find show notes at thedustcast.com. That's a great place to leave a comment about an episode or ideas for future episodes or any questions you have. You can email me at jason at and you can find The Dustcast on Twitter, Facebook, and most of your favorite podcast subscription services, including iTunes. If you like what you hear, leave me a rating or a review. I'd appreciate it. And of course, let me know what's on your mind and what you'd like to hear next. Go and have a blessed week.